Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. You've been set up. That's the name of my Dharma talk tonight. The full title is You've Been Set Up How Craving and Clinging Cause Suffering I hope it's relatable (laughs) You know the the Buddha said that the Dharma This teaching These practices He said that it's good in the beginning It's good in the middle And it's good in the end So, here we are in the middle of the retreat together. Is it good? (laughs) Trick question. (laughs) You know, many of us, this is our first retreat experience, and so welcome. It's the first time you've been in the middle of a retreat experience. And for some of us, we've done this before. But no one has been here in this retreat experience. And for me, sometimes in the middle of the retreat, I wake up on day three like, what the fuck am I doing here? Do I really have to do this again? Sitting and walking and sitting and walking. Staring at the breath. Noting the feeling tones of every sense door. It's like some of us just realize that there are six of them. It's just getting used to the five we learned in kindergarten. For me, I literally just memorized my door code to the front door. (laughs) And so all this is to say that on retreat, doubts can arise in the mind. It can be hard. No mud, no lotus. And the teachers tell us that it's just another unpleasant mind state to note doubt. One of my favorite retreat stories, some of y'all have heard this before, is I was in Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar, on a retreat. And it took me 10 hours to fly to South Korea, and then another six hours to fly to Thailand, and then spent the night, woke up, went to Myanmar, rode in a car for three hours to get to the retreat center, so it was a over a day of travel. And I went on a style of retreat that's in the lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw. And he's a very intense dude. 
So they have you wake up at three in the morning and you meditate formally for 16 hours a day, hour long sits, hour long walks. And at the end of the first day, I was just done, <coughs> done, done. And I thought I'd be compassionate and take care of myself. And so I decided to duck out on the last hour-long sitting period. Started walking down the path and this monk stopped me in my tracks and said, excuse me, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm very tired. I just got here you know, last night. And so I'm going to my kuti, my hut, to go to sleep. And he said, oh no, it's meditation time. <laughs> And I said, yeah, I know it's meditation time. But for me, it's sleepy time. <laughs> and he looked at me and he put his hands in Anjali, the prayer hands, and he said, please try, please try. And with all of this, experience that I was going through, the exhaustion, the agitation, the physical pain, adjusting to a new culture, a language barrier, all of these things. There's something that broke through, you know, they call this Dharma transmission. You ever have a moment in your life where something just speaks to you? It's not an intellectual thing. It's like something <laughs> resonates in your heart. And I realized that this monk had so much faith in me in my practice, in my capacity to do this. And he wanted to let me know that. And his words for that were, please try. And Mikey talked about on the first night just how beautiful it is to have you all here just showing up for yourselves, whatever we get out of the experience. And Maddie even offered today the instruction from one of our teachers her great-grand-teacher, George Haas. I love you. Keep going. Keep going. As humans, we have this understanding. I think we share an understanding. And it's not really an understanding that is very popular to talk about. It's not always something that we're willing to be open and honest about. But it's something we know intimately. <clears throat> and that is that it ain't easy. The human condition, having a mind that has a mind of its own, having a heart that has pain and fear, having a body that hurts, that is aging, that becomes ill. One of my favorite albums is David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust. And he has a song that says, it ain't easy to get to heaven when you're going down. It ain't easy to get peace when the heart is wild, when the mind is distracted, when we're tired, when there's pain. 
And the Buddha says we live in these worldly winds. We live in these conditions. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, status and disgrace. And that we're constantly being pushed and pulled in all of these directions. And the Chinese Buddhists say that life is both 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And we don't get to pick when the joy's here, when the sorrow comes, and how long it stays for. So it ain't easy. And the Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. And I know a lot of you all know me, but I thought I'd share a little bit about my beginning coming into this practice. And the Dharma that I experienced really happened before I ever learned anything about Buddhism or I ever sat a meditation retreat or I even ever meditated in my life. For me, from a young age, I had what I would call an existential emptiness. <clears throat> As a kid, in my kid language, I would just say that the world felt big and I felt scared. In the Buddhist teaching, we have a word for this. It's called dukkha. And dukkha is one of these words, like many words in the Buddhist language, that's hard to translate into English. The literal translation of dukkha actually means big, empty. Something about this human condition, this experience is big, it's vulnerable, and it is uneasy at times. The other translation of this word is it actually comes from like a, I don't know if they had these at the time, but like a mechanics handbook because they used to ride around on ox carts. And the word dukkha was like a mechanic term to mean that the axle of the ox cart didn't quite fit right into the hole of the wheel. So there was this disjointedness or this disconnection between the axle and the wheel and therefore it made for a very bumpy ride. I like thinking, I've never been to India actually, but in Southeast Asia where the Buddhist tradition is very rich, you'll often ride on the dirt roads, like the back of a moped or the back of a bike to go get something from the market, and it's very bumpy. <laughs> I like to think that the Buddha thought that this experience of riding on the bumpy roads of ancient India was much like a good metaphor for life and what it meant to be human. I like to say that it's like getting the shopping cart at the grocery store that has the dead wheel and you're just dragging it through. You've already committed, you don't want to bring it back, you just have to deal with the inconvenience. During my training retreat 
really wonderful teacher that I I love a lot. It's a part of the Thai forest tradition, her teacher was Ajahn Chah. She taught me that the word dukkha has another meaning. Marika knows that when you get into Buddhism, you can become quite a nerd for the Pali etymology. <coughs> and the word that she taught me is she said it's kind of a combo word between two other words, du and akash, which actually literally means separate from the other. So there's this experience that I think a lot of people have, a lot of people share, where we just don't feel like we fit. We can't get life to fit, and we feel like we don't fit. And this was my experience as a kid. Not that uncommon, I don't think. And so for me, as many of you all in our Sangha know, I turned to drugs and alcohol to fill the void. Very cliche. Um, and it worked. During a time in my life where I was suicidal, depressed, didn't fit, drugs and alcohol helped me feel ease, peace, well-being. A lot of the things we're actually trying to cultivate here. We often talk about how drugs and alcohol don't work, but they saved my life, actually, in a lot of ways. And the last day I got high, I was on probation, and I had moved to Nashville to go to treatment and was staying in a halfway house. And I decided to get high, and I left the halfway house and I spent all my money, and I got high, and I saw someone get shot that night, and I got kicked out of my place to live, and I woke up the next morning in Bordeaux, which is a neighborhood in Nashville that 16 years ago. It's one of the communities that has been set aside and not really cared for in Nashville, so it's a pretty dangerous place. And I woke up with nothing in this moment, as Mikey was talking about the other night, this kind of moment of desperation. I didn't want to be clean, I didn't want to be sober, but I couldn't any longer get high. I call it recovery purgatory. And I went to work that day because I did have a job, that's one thing I did have, and the other thing I had was I had about four really good friends that I'd met in about the two months that I lived there. And they were all sober, they were all in recovery. And my sponsor worked at CD Warehouse. And I worked next door at Cheeseburger Charlie's. And I was talking to my friend, who was my manager at my job, and telling him about this awful night that I had had. And he said, did you ask Joel, who was my sponsor at the time, did you ask Joel for help? And I said, yeah, man, I told him everything that happened and went wrong and all of this stuff. And he said, did you ask him for help, though? And I realized that I had it, and it was this visceral moment for me. I actually remember the feeling I had in my body. 
And I walked over to the CD warehouse and I sat down with tears in my eyes and I looked at him and I said, I need help. I don't know what to do. I felt lost again. And this for me was a moment of surrender. Shinzen Myung is a meditation teacher and he says that pain times resistance equals suffering. At that point in my life, I had no more fight in me. I had to throw up my hands and I had to give up. Stop trying to solve my problems. Meditation teaches us to, to us too. You can't solve the problem of the mind with the mind. There's nothing to fix. There's no problem to solve. There's only an experience to be with, and that experience is only ever now. The Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Bhikkhu Bodhi says the search for a spiritual life is born out of suffering. It does not start with lights and ecstasy, but with the hard tracks of pain, disappointment, and confusion. However, for suffering to give birth to a genuine spiritual search, it must amount to more than something passively received from outside of oneself. He says, the search for a spiritual life is born out of suffering. For me, that was my experience. And this beginning, my dharma in the beginning was what I call my blockbuster experience. You can make a little movie out of that. Probably wouldn't sell. There are cooler stories out there, but it was my blockbuster. But really, a more important experience I had of the dharma being good in my life showing up for me in my life was a really ordinary experience, and that's what I wanted to focus on tonight. And the ordinary experience I had occurred about four or five years after I'd gotten into recovery. I was sober. Recovery had taught me to be a good person. I lived with integrity. I was honest. I didn't steal. But I had this isolating feeling, and I couldn't figure out how I could be doing so good, but feeling so bad. So my ordinary experience was that I was not happy. I'm a therapist, so I meet a lot of people that aren't happy. And the first thing I usually tell them is that, in one way or another, I don't say it like this, that it's not that uncommon to be unhappy, actually. For me, I was doing everything that I was supposed to be doing. I had changed my life drastically, but inside, in my heart, I wasn't happy. I wasn't at peace. So I called up my friend Dave at the time, and he told me to come to the weekly meditation group. And over those first several months, I started to learn about the Buddhist teachings. I started to practice meditation. 
And this is what I would call my journey to the middle path. So this is the Dharma that's good in the middle. Now, my meditation practice has shown me over time that I'm always in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end of experiences all of the time. Thich Nhat Hanh says, touching the present moment, we realize that this moment is completely made of the past and completely creating the future. So we're always in the beginning of something. We're always in the middle of something. We're always in the end of something. But in the middle of my Dharma path, I learned something that the Buddha taught that there was a higher happiness that's not born of this world. That this is an inside job, that happiness is not something that you get out there. It's not even something you can do. He said that happiness was not dependent on circumstances and events and experiences and opportunities and promotions and partners and all of those things. And this is what really interests me. The Buddha went even further and he said, actually, your happiness is not even dependent on particular feelings, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, neutral feelings. It's a happiness that's beyond conditions. The Dharma's good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. This was the good news for me. So for me, I realized through the Buddhist practice that I had been set up. I'd been set up by a world that taught me the opposite. That more pleasure, more things, more status, more relationships, that those things were going to make me happy. But the Buddha had this radical teaching, and this is what I love about the teaching, and it's, it's hard to hear sometimes, actually. You can investigate it for yourself. The Buddha taught me that mostly I'd been set up, yes, by the world out there, but that I'd actually been set up by my mind. In the Rohitasa Sutta, the Buddha says, it is within this fathom-long body with its thoughts and perceptions that you will find the world, the origin of the world, the ceasing of the world, and the path that leads to the ceasing of the world. The Buddha taught me that suffering is mind-made, that the world is constructed through your thoughts and perceptions. And the Buddha had this experience himself of this urgency of this desperation. There's some sweet poems in the suttas that you can find if you dig deep. This is one of the Buddha's poems. He says, I will tell you of how I experience samvega, which means spiritual urgency. Seeing people floundering like fish in small puddles, competing with one another, as I saw this, fear came into me. This world was entirely without substance. All the directions were knocked out of line. Wanting a haven for myself, I saw nothing that wasn't already laid claim to. Seeing nothing in the end but competition, I felt discontent. And then I saw an arrow here, 
so very hard to see, embedded in the heart, overcome by this arrow, you run in all directions. But simply on pulling it out, you don't run and you don't sink. What is this arrow inside? The Buddha calls this tanha, craving, clinging, tanha and upadana. Marika talked today about our awareness practice being like standing at the door and watching as the feelings arise and pass through the senses, noting the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral tone or impression of each moment of experience. And with this practice over time, not just this practice of feeling tone, but with mindfulness practice, really the whole, dare I say, goal of the Buddhist teaching on the Satipatthana really centers around feeling tone and the mind's reaction to feeling. We know this intellectually, but when you see this, it's quite at first unnerving, sometimes this is what gives rise to the doubt. Sometimes the reason why we get so agitated during a meditation practice or meditation retreat is because you're seeing more clearly just how often the mind wants for things to be other than the way that they are. Whether it wants for that future thought or it wants for the cup of tea instead of the walking meditation, or it wants for this person to be that way or that person to be this way. All day long, we notice in retreat, pleasant, the mind wants, craves, clings to pleasure. Unpleasant, the mind hates, resists, tenses up around, pushes away, pushes down unpleasantness. Neutral's a tricky one because you don't really notice it, do you? And so I think when I find myself coming off of retreat, it's really interesting to notice how so much of my, it's, it's hard to say, it's kind of humbling, but so much of my day is actually really just being pushed around by this pleasure-pain dichotomy, chasing what I like, preferring what I like, and pushing away what I don't like. Buddha says that there is a way, through this practice, there is a way that we can abandon craving and clinging and to learn to be with the primary impression of pleasure and pain that we experience, knowing that feeling is temporary. We can let go into the stream of sounds and breath and body and taste and sound and probably said it a couple of them twice mind (laughs) 
not mindful, reaction starts to form in the mind. This tanha, upadana, starts to form in the mind and that that is actually what creates our suffering. The Buddha has a sutta called this, I actually don't know what it's called, but I call it the second arrow. And he says, when touched with a feeling of pain, the person without mindful awareness present will sorrow, grieve, and lament, and beat their breast and become distraught. So in this way, this person will then feel two pains, the initial pain and the mental pain. Just as if they were to shoot this person with an arrow and then right afterward were to shoot them again with another one so that they would feel the pain of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the person without mindful awareness present will sorrow, grieve, and lament, beat their breast, and become distraught. So then they feel two pains, the initial pain and the mental pain. Mikey talked about the experience of becoming intimate with pain. It's counter to our biology. It's counter to what the brain is used to. As he said, the brain is wired to survive. And Marika talked about this morning too, the perception of pain as a threat to our nervous system, the perception of pleasure as an opportunity to our nervous system. And surviving is not the same thing as being happy. That's what I learned. So the Buddha says a couple things about craving and clinging, and I hope this helps to maybe normalize the first thing he says is that it arises. He says craving arises. And what I think he means by this is that it's not personal. It's not you that craves. It's the conditioning. It's the habituation of the mind that craves. The way I like to think about this, it's like you're uh, craving brain, let's say. The craving mind is like a conveyor belt, like at a ski lift. You know those old school ski lifts that you... I grew up in Michigan when I was really young, and I used to just grab onto the rope, and it would pull you up the hill. And if you were lucky, you would make it to the top without 20 people trampling you. <laughs> the craving mind is kind of like a conveyor belt, and you're not the operator of it. And we don't have to go into all of that right now, but you're not the operator of the conveyor belt. Let's just say your karma is whatever that means. <laughs> That's what I love about the Buddhist teaching. You don't gotta really believe anything you don't wanna believe. So the craving and, and the clinging are just moving through and if you don't grab onto the rope, you don't get pulled up. Mindfulness helps you to not grab onto the rope. 
it doesn't mean that the mind is going to automatically love pain and be compassionate. But the path in Buddhism is not to follow the heart, to follow the impulses of the craving mind. It's to train the heart. Bhavana, cultivation. So each time we're practicing throughout the day and we choose to lovingly renounce that resentful mind state, that judgment, that comparison, that even that moment of seeing if it's possible to soften into the pain and the knee. Not that we have to do it, but we can be curious about softening that resistance. Every time we soften, the power of that conveyor belt gets slower and slower and slower. And some might say that's what awakening is. The Buddha calls it the cooling down of reactivity. Melvin Connor is a neuroscientist and he studies the human brain as neuroscientists do, I've heard. <laughs> and he said that the default mode network of your brain, which is the, the part of the brain that's always on, whether you're doing a task or not doing a task, it's kind of like always running in the background. It's like a refrigerator, you know, humming. He said that that part of the brain is a vague mixture of anxiety and desire. He said, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. So what this means is that there's a, a mind experience of wanting. Not even really knowing what we want some of the time. There's a restlessness and a desire to our nervous system. So I assure you, when the Buddha says that craving arises, it's not your fault. And if we want to be happy, it's our responsibility. The other thing that the Buddha says about craving is that craving is repetitive. So the good news is, is that you'll get a lot of chances to get to know it. That's why we've got to unfortunately sit more than one tree. So there's a difference between craving and desire. They're actually two different words in Pali Sanskrit. And in the texts on Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma, desire is distinguished differently than tanha, which is craving. They actually call it an ethically variable mental factor which means that desire can either sway towards wholesomeness and skillfulness, or it can end up backsliding into craving, into tanha. But that desire itself is a neutral mental state. What a relief. I remember reading some of the Buddhist translations of the word tanha as desire and thinking, oh shit, I've just got to go live in a cave and try not to eat food, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and we come on retreat and it's like, 
we get an opportunity to practice renunciation so that we can actually see desire and we can start to discern what skillful desire is, which is desire that's led by intention, and what unskillful desire is, which is desire that is led by impulse. So we don't you know, act on our sexual energy here, for an ex- example. Not because sexual energy is bad or wrong or evil or immoral. Because on a retreat, it gives us an opportunity to actually be curious. Because I don't know about you, but whether it's sexual energy or it's uh, energy towards, you know, any other sense pleasure, which is the first topic that we're going to talk about in Tanha. They call it kamatanha, sensory pleasure, sensory desire. But that there are moments throughout my life, throughout my day, that I will impulsively distract myself. You know, where I will indulge in certain things just out of habit that maybe don't really serve me or they don't really take care of the emotional need that is underneath the impulse. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. In Buddhism, there's even a wholesome desire. It's called chanda. In a lot of ways, we're trying to transmute tanha, which is this, it's not really a choice, it's a reflex, this reactive craving We're trying to transmute that impulse from tanha into chanda. And Ajahn Suchito says that chanda is an eagerness to commit and apply oneself to this higher happiness, to peace. And tanha, on the other hand, is more of a demanding or needing the satisfaction of the desire. So the Buddha distinguishes three types of craving. And I want you just to reflect during this period of time. It's not like something to memorize. It's a little bit of a list. Buddha was really big on less, but it's only three things. So maybe just kind of reflecting on your experience throughout the retreat to see if you notice any of these flavors of tanha, of craving, arising into your heart and mind. The first, as I said, is kama tanha, which means craving for sensory input. It's like you know, trying to force something in through the sense doors to give us that hit, that momentary experience of pleasure. Pleasant sights. I notice on retreat that all of a sudden I'm interested in reading weird informational posters. Oh my gosh, I've never seen this map of Jordan before. (laughs) 
so impersonal, not even an immoral thing, right? But just watching how quickly the mind is pulled out of the experience. And there we go into the map of Jordan. And I wonder what that was like back then. And, you know, I've got to travel more. And then, oh yeah, mindfulness, thought, pleasant. Back to the breath. Pleasant sights, pleasant smells, pleasant tastes. Yeah, the food has been really good. I ate my cookie before my lunch today and wanted more. And just noticing it, it, it really is, and it's, it's funny, you know, there's some humor, but it's also really a great opportunity during our meal periods to notice this kamatana, this craving for sense input. The flip side of craving for pleasure is also the aversion to pain. And we do, we do work a lot with the experience of pain in the body during meditation. It's a really great teacher for noticing this craving in the form of aversion. You know, I've done the hokey pokey quite a few times in the meditation hall over in my day. You know, moving one knee and moving the other knee and adjusting the, you know, cushion upright and then, you know. And we notice that moving contemporarily relieve the pain, but that the pain always comes back. So here's the both and. It's like we can move, but we move with mindfulness, with intention. And we move knowing that pain is still inevitable and that we will continue to work with pain. And sometimes it gives us when is appropriate and skillful, an opportunity to bow to the pain and to say, you know what, I think I'm gonna try to feel this pain and know this pain and care for this pain. And what is it like as a meditative experience to actually go towards the pain in the body rather than away from it? The second type of craving that the Buddha talks about is bhavatanha, which translates to mean a craving for existence, a craving that's sometimes referred to as becoming. This is where we notice the self-made stories the mind that wants not just to hold on to a pleasant experience and push away an unpleasant experience, but that wants a pleasant identity and wants to push away an unpleasant identity. It is a curse to be a Buddhist teacher and to sit a Buddhist retreat. 
I had a month-long meditation retreat with one of my favorite teachers, Ajahn Sachito, out in Vallecitos, these beautiful rolling hills out in the Carson National Forest. And the Dharma was so clear. This is a monk that's been a monastic for maybe even close to 50 years. I mean, this guy is, you know, there's not a lot of guy there, if you know what I mean. There's a lot of love there. <laughs> a lot of openness. And so I would hear the Dharma and, and this craving to kind of hold on to it. You know, it's just, again, it wasn't conscious. It was just the mind trying to find a way to, like, grasp the teaching and to be able to articulate it and hold on to it. And the, this identity of the teacher started coming up. You know, and you may notice this, too, of like, oh, I had this experience. i got to remember this one, and I know who I'm going to tell this to. And Again, it's impersonal happens to me still but I started get just getting sick of all these different characters in my mind there was the teacher there was the partner there was the, the you know partner version of me the things that I wanted to change about myself or change in my relationship to have a more mindful way of life <laughs> you know when I got up the retreat all these different versions of ourselves that, you know, the practice can help us to lay that down and to tell the mind again lovingly and kindly, not right now, not right now. I don't need to be that version right now. we can start to see, you know, the, the processes that kind of construct our identity. We can start to see there's sensory impression, there's sights and smells and tastes and feelings and thoughts, and there's feeling, as we've talked about today, and there's perception. Right? You can start to see how the mind constructs this Identity, the sense of self that seems so solid but is really the source of a, a lot of suffering, actually. Because how often is this person that I call myself not good enough, not thin enough? You know, how often is this person that I call myself Most of it for me is just not enough. But there's a lot of suffering around this self-made narrative. And the flip side of the coin for Bawatana, which I call Bawatana the craving of deficiency. Right? Once I'm smarter or once I'm 
more knowledgeable about the teachings or once I'm, you know, whatever it may be. If only I was X, then I would be happy. Fill in the blank, I guess, is what I'm saying. <laughs> and the flip side of this experience is what we um, call vibhavatanha, which is the craving for non-existence. Not wanting to be this version, this identity. I've experienced this myself as well as like dealing with, you know, a lot of the conditionings of the world kind of form us and shape us into identities at a young age. I think a lot of my depression was this kind of vibhavatana, it's just not wanting to exist. It was really actually very helpful to look at uh, some of my suicidal ideation. It wasn't even mine, it wasn't personal, but some of the intrusive thoughts of not wanting to be here as craving. And the reality is, is that we crave and we want and we long for something because at the base we care. We want to be happy. We're just confused as to where to find it. Because the mind is always telling us it's in the next thing, the next experience, the next identity, the next hit of pleasure. And that it's not ever here in this experience, in this moment. The Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. So what to do about it? Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the attempt to drive craving away with a mind full of fear and loathing, this approach does not resolve the problem, but only pushes it below the surface where it continues to thrive. The tool the Buddha holds out to free the mind from craving is actually understanding and compassion. Real letting go is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things that are inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of craving and investigate it closely with keen attention, the craving actually falls away by itself because we understand it and there's no need to struggle. Today we've been cultivating awareness and compassion, specifically looking at our relationship to pain this afternoon. And I heard a couple people in the interviews, which I always love to hear, is something that one of my clients lovingly refers to as the double fuck, which is where you try to hate your hatred away. (laughs) We notice the moment of aversion or the moment of craving and we slap our hand, bad Buddhist. And what is it like to instead say, ah, I see you, mind. Like Mikey said, sweet mind, 
feel you. I know you. I care for you. I'll close with some words from Ajahn Chah. Simplify your meditation practice down to just two words. Let go. Rather than try to develop this practice and develop that practice and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the texts on Buddhist psychology and then learn Pali Sanskrit and then the Prajnaparamita and then get ordinations and the Hinayana and the Mahayana and the Vajrayana and write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. I did nothing but this for two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out by itself. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of your age, but instead, I must suggest becoming an earthworm instead. Letting go of the desire to become the Buddha. Just be an earthworm who only knows two words. Let go, let go, let go. We'll sit for just a moment.